Well, good morning and welcome to the Mount. My name is Adam and I'm the lead pastor here. And I'm so excited whether you're here at the Stafford campus, whether you're online with us or down at Fredericksburg, that you're joining us as we begin a new series today titled The Final Week. And over the next five weeks, what we're gonna be doing is we're gonna be looking at five significant events that occurred during the final week of Jesus's life. This week is also known as the Holy Week. Uh, for some people, we can say it's the greatest week in the history of the world. And so if you have your Bibles with you this morning, if you would, just please open up to Matthew chapter 21. If you don't have your Bible with you, uh, I would encourage you to download the Mount app or pull up the Mount app, and you can find all of our scripture references as well as any notes, and you can even take notes on that app right there with us as you follow along. Well, as you are turning to Matthew chapter 21, I wanna make sure that we're all on the same page, and so let's just talk about the backstory a little bit of what's happening. So Jesus, most scholars would say, was born between the year, or around the year four or five B.C., and so Jesus, uh, when we think of his life, most of the things we think of are not what occurred in the early years of his life. Like most children, he had a, a normal childhood, I guess, as, as normal as it could be for being the son of God, fully divine and fully human. He had a, a normal childhood, a normal teenage years. And then by the time he was 30 years old is when Jesus began what's known as his public ministry. And his, his public ministry is the time of Jesus' life where we typically think of all the things that Jesus did. When he began calling his, his followers, his disciples to follow him. When he began teaching stories about the, the kingdom of God and what it means to live in the kingdom of God. When he began healing people. When he began to do all the various other miracles that he did of like feeding the, feeding the 5,000 and the loaves and the fishes and walking on the water. And all of those events occurred in the final three years of his life or, or three and a half years to be exact. Now, Jesus' final year of his life was when he was 33 years old. It takes place somewhere around the year 29 AD. And all of the events that occur in that final week of his life when he's 33 years old all occur, for context, just so you know, all occur within the city of Jerusalem. So everything we're going to study over the next five weeks all occurs when Jesus is 33 years old living in the city of Jerusalem. And so if you have your Bibles, we're going to be uh, this morning looking at a story also known as Palm Sunday, or for some people, the triumphal entry. And if you're unfamiliar with church, that's okay. We're going to walk us through it. But basically, it's the day that Jesus arrives into the city of Jerusalem, and there's this huge crowd waiting for him. In Matthew 21.10, we actually read this. It says, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred. Now, let's pause for a second, because in the original Greek language, the language that the New Testament was written in, that word stirred is actually sometimes translated as the word shaken. It's actually the word that we get in our English language, the word seismic from. And so what scripture is saying is here, saying, when Jesus arrives into the city of Jerusalem, the whole city is alive. It's chaotic. It's full of commotion. It's full of all of this anticipation. The city is literally shaking with anticipation for what is to come. It's stirred. And what happens next? It says, they asked, who is this? Who is this? It's a question. And it's the question that's going to kind of under, kind of underneath everything we look at in the final week of Jesus's life. Who is this Jesus? Who was he? What, what, is, he, what is he doing? Why is this such a big deal that he's here? What, what, what's happening? Who is this Jesus? And it's interesting to me 
that the, the, the people, the crowd that day in Jerusalem would ask this question because it's the very same question that 2,000 years later, many of us are still asking. Maybe for you, you ask that question. You begin to, to wrestle with the idea of, of who Jesus was. Maybe, maybe you grew up in the church, and as you became a teenager, middle school, high school, or even into college, and you begin to kind of wrestle with your faith and try to, to figure out what do you believe what, versus what your, your parents have always taught you. How do you own your faith? You begin to wrestle with that question, who is Jesus? For me, when I was in college, when I was confronted with my selfishness, when I was confronted with the fact that the life I thought was finding fulfillment and joy in was completely worthless, but Jesus promised me something way better than anything I could ever imagine, I was confronted with the question, who is Jesus? Or maybe for you, you're here today, whether you're here at Stafford, joining us online or down in Fredericksburg, and you are asking that very question today. Who is Jesus? What's the big deal? Why all the commotion? Why is the city stirred? Why is the city shaken? What is the big deal with this guy named Jesus? Well, when I was a little, little kid, I would go to my grandma's house, my, my grandparents' house, and my, my grandmother had this picture of Jesus that would always hang in her dining room. And it was interesting, this picture, I just vividly remember it. It's been about 20 years since I've seen this picture. But when I would go there, and the picture would always be hanging there. And despite being a little culturally inappropriate, right, because we know Jesus didn't have flowing locks of blonde hair or brown, and he wasn't white looking. But, like, despite this, when I, when I close my eyes still to this day, it's been about 20 years since I've seen this picture. If I begin to, to make a mental image of Jesus, this is the Jesus I picture. It was the Jesus I saw, the Jesus I knew. It's a Jesus who, he looks loving, but he also looks like he'd stare deep right into your soul if you say the wrong thing. <laughs> like, like my grandma would say, it's the kind of Jesus who would take a paddle to your behind if you lied to him, right? But it's just what I picture. I mean, for some of you, you didn't grow up in any context where there was religious pictures around, and so you've been kind of, you know, studying the Bible, but now as you begin watching a series called The Chosen, you found a new image of Jesus that you've fallen in love with. Maybe this is, when you close your eyes and picture Jesus, this is the Jesus you picture. And what I love about this Jesus, if you've never seen The Chosen Show, this Jesus is a little bit fun. He's a, he's a little bit sarcastic at times where, where Peter will start to do something and he'll make a joke with him. He's not quite the same disciplinarian as the image that I grew up with. Or maybe the image of Jesus that you have is the one in 2002 when British anthropologists said they were trying to find the most accurate picture of Jesus ever created. And they did all this research and all this insight into the different culture of the first century Palestine and what genetics would look like. And they created this image of Jesus who was a day laborer, who was not wealthy, who was poor, who was a common man. And what's funny is they found out that this Jesus was probably only five feet one. He was shorter. He wasn't as big and grand as the Jesus I grew up with. But maybe you see this Jesus in your mind because he's, he's humble. He's an everyday person. And you resonate with him. I think on some level or another, we all have this mental image of who Jesus is. Think about the things we say. We say, Jesus is my shepherd. He protects me. He cares for me. He loves me. He watches over me. He, he lifts me up when I am down. He is my Lord and my Savior. He is the one who gave his life for my sins on the cross. 
Maybe when you close your eyes and you picture Jesus, it's not his loving character you picture, but it's the brutal death he incurred for you. We all have a different mental image of Jesus. Maybe for you, he's just a great teacher. He's somebody who could tell an amazing story, a parable, from beginning to end and weave it together where it left you with this one, two, three punch right to the stomach and you always left wondering what's coming next. Maybe he wasn't a true historical figure, but he was a great teacher for you. We have other things too, right? We say Jesus is a prophet. Jesus is my co-pilot when I'm in my car and he puts a hedge of protection around me and he protects me from driving off the road. Jesus is my homeboy. And maybe you have a t-shirt that says that and you wear it to the beach when you go to Panama City because Jesus is your homeboy when you're down there. Regardless of what, I think for all of us, whether we have grown up in the church or whether this is our very first time here, I think we all have this mental image of who Jesus is. And it's fascinating to me that even 2,000 years ago, as he rides into the city of Jerusalem, people were asking, who is Jesus? And it's the same question I wanna pose to you this morning. Who is Jesus in your life? Well, when I was a, 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 there's there's a computer word, there's an acronym, and it's called WYSIWYG. And what you see is what you get. It's a WYSIWYG. What you see is what you get. And this acronym is used um, a lot of times in the computer world, especially when people are building web pages. And if some of you work in IT, you would explain this way better than I can. So just kind of umbrella of grace here for me a moment, right? But a WYSIWYG, what you see is what you get, is this idea that if I was sitting down and building a website, I could do it the, the old traditional way where I do what's called HTML coding, where I have to learn all the codes and the shortcuts and type all this thing in. And then when I hit like open it in a web browser, it looks totally different, right? Because it's got pictures and video and all the moving things. But over here, it's just code. Well, WYSIWYG is what you see. is It's basically you can build the website by dragging things in, inserting it. And what you're working on actually is an image of what everyone on the user end would see as well. The idea here is that as you're developing it, as you're building, it, it makes sure that you put in there exactly what you want so that it looks exactly the way. It gives you these expectations. What you see is what you get. Now, I don't know about you, but in my experiences and the people I talk to, it seems like so many times in life, that's not true. It seems like in life that sometimes what you get or what you want is not what you get. Sometimes in life, things just don't turn out the way we expect them. I remember when I was uh, a teenager, I was looking to buy my second car. I, uh, my parents had given me my first car and I loved them well enough to wreck it into a curb. And so I decided out of love for them, I was going to buy my second car. Um, and so I had saved up some money and I wanted to buy a car. I was a 17 year old boy. And as most 17 year old boys, I wanted to buy a car that had two things. One was manly and two would impress the ladies, right? Those are my goals. And I wanted to go fast, of course, always. So I began, uh, this was, you know, pre-internet kind of, internet was just kind of a thing. And so I didn't go to a dealership. Uh, I know I wasn't gonna get suckered into that. If you work at a dealership or you're a part of a dealership, I apologize. This was 17-year-old Adam who didn't see a value in dealerships. I see value in them now. But at 17, I was like, I'm not going to a dealership. That's a scam. I'm going to do this all on my own. So I began pouring just like anyone else would in the early 2000s through the classified ads and the auto trader book, right? And you would buy the auto trader book at your local gas station. And I remember looking through the auto trader book every single day, week, whenever it came out, hoping to find the car that would complete me. Finally, I found it. 
I remember the ad, and I don't remember word for word what the ad said, but let's just say the ad said something like, Adam, want to impress the ladies? This is the car for you. And it was immaculate and beautiful the way the description was, and the price was a steal. I remember looking at the auto trader, looking at this ad being like, that's the car I have to have. If God exists, it exists because he wants me to have this car. I need to have it, I want to have it, and look at the price. I can't believe this dude is selling it for this much. This dude must be a sucker. And so the next day I call this guy and say, hey sir, my name's Adam, I'm looking to see if the car that is for sale in the auto trader is still available. And he's like, yeah man, it's really there. And I'm like, okay, just to confirm, this is the price. And he's like, yep, that's the price. I remember hanging up the phone, being like, oh, fist bump, this dude's a sucker, I'm about to steal from this guy. So excited. Tell all my friends, tell everyone I know, I'm gonna go buy this car. So I, I head to his house to go pick it up and I stop by the bank to get cash because who, you always buy a car with cash. And so I go get cash and I head to his house and I have this wad of cash in my back pocket and I show up and right when I get down the street, I can see the car sitting in the driveway and it's beautiful. It's everything the ad had ever described. It's, it's everything I ever wanted. I could see myself sitting in it like this going, hey ladies, what's going on? Like it was perfect. Everything I ever dreamed of. So I go to his house, I, I knock on the door, ring the doorbell, and this middle-aged 35-year-old man wearing a white shirt and no shoes comes out and he says, how can I help you? And I said, yes, sir, I'm here to buy that beautiful thing sitting in the driveway. And he says, awesome, and I say, he says, let me show it to you. And we go over and we begin looking at the car and I'm rubbing my fingers on it, touching it, and he says, do you wanna get in and sit down? Of course I do. I get in and I'm you know, practicing, sick shifting, all this kind of thing, and I'm so excited about this car. And right as I was about to just take the money out of my back pocket and hand it over to him, I had this divine intervention, gut check, Taco Bell for breakfast, whatever you want to call it. And I, I paused for a moment and said, sir, can we just start the car up and maybe take it for a test drive? And this middle-aged man standing barefoot in his driveway with a white shirt on just begins laughing. And he says, son, this car doesn't have an engine. And he says, do you think I would sell it for this cheap? What do you think I am, a sucker? <laughs> Sometimes in life, things just don't turn out the way we expect. You buy a car, and it's a great deal. And two weeks later, it breaks down. You have a, a friendship, and you guys are really, really close, and it's great. So you decide to move it into the dating realm and it just unravels and falls apart. You, you married the person that you thought would be perfect, and they left you. You saw the perfect promotion, and you thought, if I could get this, I'll be satisfied. And it turns out that new job is more miserable than the last. You tried for years, and years and years to get pregnant, only to miscarry. Sometimes in life, things just don't turn out the way we expect. It's interesting, on Palm Sunday, the crowd that was gathered there when Jesus arrived was expecting something. Take a look at John 11, 55 and 56. John says this, when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before it. So this is like a day or so before. We don't know the exact timeline. And they kept what? They kept looking for Jesus. 
And as they stood in the temple courts, they, they began asking one another. And listen to the anticipation in their voice. What do you think? Isn't he coming to the festival at all? You, you, you have these people, these, these pilgrims who, who have come a couple days early to get ready, to clean up, to be, to be available for this Passover week. And there's this, this anticipation this, this expectation, there, you can feel it. The crowd is like, man, do you think, like, we're looking for Jesus. Where is he? Like, you think he's coming? I think he's coming. He's got to come. He would have missed this. This is, this is the holy holiday. This is the festival of Passover. Jesus would never miss this. I can't wait to see him. He's got to be coming. We're expecting him to be here. And when he gets here, we're expecting him to be and do something. The crowd was expecting something. So let's take a look at the full story. Matthew 21, 1 through 10 says it this way. As they, this is Jesus and his disciples, right, as his followers, as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives. Let's pause here for a minute because I want you to feel this. So Jesus and his followers, they have just left the area of Jericho and they're heading to the city of Jerusalem. They're they are wandering down the Jericho road, the very same road that he would have referenced when he told the story of the Good Samaritan. And as they're, as they're wandering this, this rocky desert type road, they get to this place where there's this, this hill that they have to climb up and they reach the top, the, the pinnacle, the, the final ridge of this place called the Mount of Olives. And as they get there, they look down and before them, they see the ancient city of Jerusalem with the temple and all of its splendor and all of its glory. And they see pilgrims from all over Israel kind of filing in through the various different gates surrounding the city, heading there to be ready for this Passover festival. And Jesus, when he looks off of this ridge down from the Mount of Olives and he sees down below him, it's interesting the road that he has chosen to take on his way in because the very road that's kind of winding in front of him is the very same road that centuries before the former king of Israel, King David, had to use to escape Jerusalem when he was freeing from Absalom. And so the very road that Jesus, we're going to come back to this, the very road that Jesus is walking into Jerusalem on is the very same road that a former king of Israel left in disgrace on as he fled. And so it continues. It says, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you. And at once you'll find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them and he will send them right away. I just love his confidence. Like they're gonna find a donkey and just say the Lord needs it. It says, this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. So here's the, the Old Testament reference. Say to daughter Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. Verse six, so the disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. Verse eight, this is where it gets interesting. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. In verse 10, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? Jesus rides into this city, Jerusalem, and it's stirred, it's chaotic, it's alive, it's, it's electric. Most uh, ancient scholars would say that the city of Jerusalem at any given time would have a population between 20 and 30,000 people. 
But during Passover, during the festival week, the, the highest of all the, the Jewish holidays, the, the, the pilgrims from all over Israel would flock there for their sacrifices and to be able to worship at the temple, that the city would swell from about 20,000 or 30,000 to more like 200 to 350,000 people packed into the city that is small by modern standards. And so it's, it's electric, it's alive, and the whole city is just chaotic and is noisy, and they're, they're all bringing their supplies and their animals for sacrifices, and everyone's loud, and there's music, and there's celebration, because everyone is ready to celebrate this feast that is about to occur, and they're excited, and they're looking forward to it. And as they're there, they're all beginning to look for him. Is he coming? Where is he? Where is he? Like, and they're discussing, no, he's not going to come. Oh, he's going to come. He's going to be here. And there's this, this sense of anticipation. It's this, this, this palpable feeling of expectation. And so it begs the question, what's the crowd expecting? What are they anticipating? What are they looking forward to? To answer this, let's go back and look at a couple key verses in our passage. Verse 7 and 8, it says this, They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. Verse 8, And a very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road. So as Jesus is riding down through the Valley of Kidron, going into the Golden Gate, as he's going into this gate, the crowd that's following him, the crowd that's coming out to meet him, and the crowd that's in the city, they begin to, to take off their jackets, their cloaks, their, their coats, whatever word you want to use, and spread them down on the ground so that his donkey can ride over them. And it's like, well, that's kind of a strange thing to do, especially taking that a first century Jewish person who is on a pilgrimage to a city that is not their home probably did not take every coat they owned. They most likely, according to most scholars, was they probably took one, maybe two coats at the most, probably one to last them the week. And they didn't, they didn't have just a, a surplus of these laying around. And so for them to, to take off their coat, to take off their cloak and lay it down on the ground so that a donkey and people can march over it with their dirty, dusty feet, they would then have to go and pick it back up and wear it for the rest of the week. This was a big deal because this made them kind of dirty, not unclean, but dirty. And so why would a group of people do this? It's interesting if you go back in the Israelite history, just a, a couple hundred years, there's a guy by the name of Jehu who's found in 2 Kings. Jehu was a, a commander or a, a general in the Israelite army. And Jehu was responsible and kind of the victor of a certain battle that eliminated many of uh, Israelites' army enemies. And so he was kind of celebrated and loved. I and mean, because of his kind of uh, military prowess, because of how victorious he was in battle, the Israelite nation, through God's ordaining, decided to make him their king. And we find in 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 13, the process of what happened when they made Jehu king. Take a look at this with me. They quickly took their cloaks and spread them under him on the bare steps. Then they blew the trumpet and shouted, Jehu is king. And in other words, when Jehu is first announced as king, his, his coronation event, the moment where he becomes no longer a general, but a king to the nation, what do they do? They spread their coats down underneath him like a red carpet as a way to show honor and respect to him. And so what we see, fast forward just a couple hundred years later, when Jesus is riding into the city of Jerusalem, these people, these Israelites, are remembering their history, remembering what has happened, and they are throwing down their coats for Jesus to walk on as a way to honor and show respect for him, proclaiming a coronation. Jesus, you are our king. They are making a statement. We honor you. We respect you. You are our 
king. Verse 8 continues, a very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while what? While others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. In John's telling of this event, in his gospel, we find out that these, these branches are actually palm branches. And, and unlike what we kind of sometimes do when we bring children on stage and we tell them to wave their palm branches, here they're, they're throwing them on the ground as well. But why is it significant that they're palm branches? For the Jewish people, about 200 years before Jesus enters Jerusalem, there's a guy by the name of Judah Maccabee. And Judah Maccabee was a guy who led a successful Jewish revolt against the Greek kind of governing authorities over Jerusalem at the time. And Judah Maccabee, when he organized this revolt, he was celebrated as a hero for what he did. He freed the, Greek, he freed the Israelites from the Greek oppression. He allowed them to kind of be able to take over the city of Jerusalem. It's why Jewish people today celebrate Hanukkah. They're celebrating the Maccabean revolt and what happened in history at that time. But what would happen was when he entered the city for the very first time, when, when Judah Maccabee, after his successful revolt, entered the city, they began throwing down palm branches and waving them as a way to symbolize victory and freedom for God's people. And in in much the same way that you and I, at 4th of July, we hang a flag up or put one in our yard or put one on our car or attach one to our lawnmower while we're mowing the grass, right? We, We wanna show people that we are celebrating victory and freedom in our country and it is a symbol that displays that to the world around us. So Jesus marches into this city riding on a donkey. And they're throwing down their coats saying, we honor you, we respect you as our king, and you bring victory and freedom. And we are excited about that. And the third thing, verse nine, the crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, listen to what they shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven." And John and Luke's telling of this event, they add the phrase, blessed is the king of Israel. Now, let's, let's break this down. Hosanna, if you don't know this, in Greek means Hosanna. Like, that's it. You guys are awake this morning. See, it's time change. We got to, no. So, Hosanna in Greek means Hosanna, but Hosanna in Hebrew, the Old Testament, means much more. It's interesting. The Hebrew language is very... It's a very emotive language full of emotions. The word translates save us or save now, but to a Hebrew, it has an emotion attached to it. The word has feeling. It's less of a statement, save us, save now, save us now. And it's more of a a plea. It's more of a, a begging. It's more of somebody down on their knees crying out, Save us. Save us now. In fact, it comes from Psalm 118.25 when it says this. It says, Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success in what we are facing. It's as someone is begging and pleading and requesting of God to save them, to rescue them, to deliver them. And the other phrase that they're singing is, blessed Hosanna, son of God. David, which son of David is a a common Old Testament phrase for this this guy known as the Messiah or the anointed one or the savior, the the deliverer, the one who's going to come and fix everything. And we're going to come back to that. So just, just let's just put everything together here, right? 
Jesus is, is marching into this city, not marching, he, he's, he's riding into this city and the crowd is, is swelling. He has the crowd that came with him. All the pilgrims who are also on this road that are going into Jerusalem are joining him thinking Jesus is here. And there's news from a day or two before where the people in John are in Jerusalem and they're asking if he's coming and they're coming out to meet Jesus. And there's this huge procession, procession begins to form and they begin to ride into the city. And as they ride into the city that is, that is packed, it's swelling, it's overflow, it says it's, it's stirred, it's, it's shaken, it's, it's seismic with energy. As they ride in, people begin laying down their coats saying, you are worthy, we honor you, we respect you as our king. Then they begin throwing down palm branches saying, you are the king who will bring us victory. You are the king who will bring us freedom. And then they begin screaming out, singing, just save us now. Please, Messiah, please, Christ, please, anointed one. You are the king who we honor, who has come to save us. What was the crowd looking for? A king who would save them. A Messiah. And that's a, that's a loaded term. If you go back through the, the history of Israelite people, what we see is the Messiah, the, the anointed one, the Christ, whatever translation you want to use there, was this, this key kind of political, military leader, this, this figure who, whose purpose, whose, whose mission was to bring about peace for God's people, the nation of Israel. The, the Messiah's role, his, his purpose was to de, kind of destroy all of the invading foreign armies that kept capturing Israel all throughout its history. The, the Messiah's role was to take all of the wrongs that had been committed and allow them to, to build up and become a nation that was strong and mighty and holy and powerful, to eliminate all the taxes and all the oppression and all the difficulties that they faced, to get them back to the place that God intended them to be as a nation who was strong, back to peace and shalom like the Garden of Eden. The Messiah, in other words, would fix what was wrong with their lives. He was the one who would come in and fix everything. He was a conquering king. Remember, Jesus is entering the very same road that the former king David fled on. One fled, one comes conquering. But sometimes in life, things don't turn out as expected. They expected Jesus to come in and conquer. Jesus rode in to die. He wasn't conquering the way they wanted. Imagine what it would have been like, and I know this is difficult, imagine what it would have been like to be Jesus in this moment, though. You're, you're riding on a donkey, there's all this fanfare, there's all this noise and chaos and smells and sounds and people are screaming and I picture people passing out because it's hot and all this stuff happening. And as you're riding in, you have to be looking at the crowd, the very people, just imagining in your mind, the very people who are cheering you and celebrating you five days from now are going to be booing you and yelling, crucify, crucify, crucify. Why? They had an expectation. And he let them down. He was not the king they thought he would be. What kind of king do you want Jesus to be? You're like, what do you mean? 
we all, if we're, if we're honest, deepen the recesses of our heart and our mind. We all have this idea that says, I want Jesus to fix this. I want Jesus to make X right. It would be so much easier to follow him with my entire life if blank was better. We want a king who brings us peace. We want a king who gets away or takes away our stress. We want a king who fixes our marriage, who heals our broken relationships, who, who cures our sickness. Ultimately, if we're, if we're really honest, and I'm not trying to offend anyone, ultimately, we want Jesus to be the king that makes our life better. It's the very same thing the crowd was going through that day. They were, they were tired of paying taxes to the Romans. They, they were sick of having a foreign nation tell them what to do. They were sick of being told when they can worship and could they would. They were sick of all the, the rules and the regulations. They wanted someone, a Messiah, a Christ, an anointed one, a savior, a deliverer, a king to ride in and fix what was wrong in their life and to make everything better. They wanted their life to be complete and better and whole. They wanted it to be different. And you say, I don't want to do that. Did you know the most common prayer that any of us pray is, Lord, help me, Lord, help this, Lord, help. And that, the word help could literally be translated as Hosanna. And you're like, but the, here's the beauty of the gospel, right? Like, doesn't Jesus promise us multiple times in scripture, whatever you asked of me, I will give you. He, he tells us, if, if you need healing, ask. If you need this, ask. If you need this, ask. Because that's the beauty of Jesus is he wants to give us our needs. He, he wants to fulfill what we want. He wants to help us. He wants to be this Messiah, this king that helps us in life and makes our lives better. But, and don't miss this, this is the hardest part for me to struggle with as a Christ follower following after Jesus is that Jesus doesn't want to fix my superficial wants. He wants to fix something much, much deeper. And he wants to do it in his time, in his way. I want him to do it my way, when I want it done. And he says, no, I'm gonna do it differently. Here's the, here's the irony of the story. The very people who were cheering him, who wanted this deliverance, this freedom, this victory, this salvation, he was going to give it to them, but they couldn't wait five days. They wanted it then, now, their way. The crowd wanted freedom from the Romans. Jesus would give freedom from death. The crowd wanted hope, this sense of temporary hope that would only last until the next ruler. He said, I will give you eternal hope. Jesus intended, desired, and wanted to meet every one of their needs, but deeper. And that's the difficult part of following Jesus. He says yes to our wants, but at a deeper level with questions we're not even asking sometimes. What about you? Is there something in your life right now that you want to see God do? 
It's difficult, it's, it's hard, and you're, you're going through something, and it doesn't make any sense, and you, you've been wrestling, and you can't understand, where is Jesus? Where is God? Why isn't he fixing this? Why isn't he changing this? Why isn't he making this better? I just, I want to remind you this morning of Romans chapter 8, verse 28 through 30, and this won't be on the screen, but the verse, and you can read this for yourselves, and I just challenge you with that. It talks about how in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of God's silence, in the midst of where things aren't going the way we wanted, when things don't, if I can say this, don't go as expected, we need to remember, it says, we know that God is working all things together for our good. Now, what does that not mean? That doesn't mean that every bad thing, every frustrating thing, every difficult thing, every hard thing, every tragedy, no, that doesn't mean all of those things occur because God says, I want this to happen so that something good can happen in them. No, no, no. What it's saying is we live in a world that is, that is broken. We live in a world that is full of sin. We live in a world that has ripple effects and percussion and repercussions that have been happening ever since the Garden of Eden and mankind has been suffering under the curse of disobedience. And so therefore, bad things, difficult things, frustrating things, heartache, disappointment, all of those things happen. But God in his sovereign love doesn't just stand there and say, sorry, good luck, have fun. No, he steps in and he uses those things for our good. Does that mean it's gonna make us happy? No, what is our good? Our good is being conformed into the image of his son. And so everything we go through where it seems like Jesus isn't answering is conforming us to his image. It's making us stronger. It's making us more holy. Maybe the very thing you want God to fix and change, Jesus is looking at you saying in time, but right now, I'm working deeper. Can I just say, don't be the crowd. Don't give up on day five because day seven is coming. He is the king who conquers all. Sometimes in life, things don't turn out the way we expect. Sometimes they turn out better. Let's pray. Jesus, we are thankful for your word, for the way you, your life speaks truth to us. God, this morning as we, we pray, we just wanna take a moment and maybe you're here this morning and just as an act of confession, as an act of acknowledging before God, maybe you've got something in your life that you are desperately pleading and begging for God to fix or change or remove or do something differently. Would you just slip up your hand? I see your hands. If your hands are up, I just, they're a little different. I just want you to look at me. I don't know what difficulty you're going through. I don't know what you want changed. I don't know how hard it is. But I know this, that even in the midst of it, God is transforming you into the image of his son. And any amount of heartbreak, any amount of difficulty is worth that. Let me just encourage you, lean in. He's teaching you, he's showing you, and he's growing you. Lean in. As we continue praying this morning, maybe 
you're here or at any of our campuses or watching online and you're saying, Adam, the question of who is Jesus, I don't know that I have an answer. Let me just explain it real quick. 2,000 years ago, Jesus was born a virgin birth as the son of God, fully human and fully divine. He lived a perfectly sinless life. He lived the life that was holy and pure and pleasing. And then one day when he was 33 years old, seven day or five days after he rode into the city of Jerusalem, he was crucified, he was beaten, he was hung on a cross and killed for you and me, for all of us, for all of humanity because of our sins, our mistakes, our failures, our regrets, the things that we know we should not do but continuously, repeatedly do over and over and over again. And then three days later on Sunday, he miraculously rose from the grave, not just so he could defeat sin and take our punishment, but so that he could give us and you and me brand new life so that we could live a new life for all of eternity through the power of God by surrendering to his lordship and he makes you new. And if you are here this morning, Whatever campus you're at, if you would like to give your life to Jesus for the first time, would you just slip up your hand? Would you be bold? I see your hand. If you raised your hand, I just want you to pray this prayer with me. Father, I am a sinner and I need your grace. Be my Lord, be my King, make me new. Jesus, I turn from my sins and I run to you, amen. If you prayed that prayer for the first time, our, our prayer team would love to have a conversation with you. You can either, uh, you can just kind of head to the prayer area or you can come down front at any of our campuses and you can talk to someone there or you can even click the prayer button online at our online campus as well. Or maybe you're just here at any of our campuses and you just wanna take some time to pray. You, you have something going on in your life. It's a, it's a struggle or maybe it's a celebration. We just want to give you that moment. Our prayer team will be standing by as we sing this song. Let's stand and let's worship.